What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room. But too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. My law enforcement career prepared me to cope with some of the aspects of this experience. Being an officer, you know your life is at risk whenever you walk out the door. Even if you don't expect otherwise law-abiding citizens to take up arms against you. But nothing, truly nothing, has prepared me to address those elected members of our government who continue to deny the events of that day. And in doing so, betray their oath of office. Those very members whose lives, offices, staff members, I was fighting so desperately to defend. That was D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone, one of four police officers who testified on Tuesday before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Seven months after a mob of marauding Trump supporters attempted to violently stop Congress's certification of Joe Biden as president, the officers vividly recounted harrowing stories of the armed insurrectionists physically and verbally assaulting them. All of them said they feared for their lives. Capitol Police Officer Aquilino Gonell, an Iraq war veteran, recalled thinking, this is how I'm going to die, as he was being trampled by the raging crowd. He characterized the mayhem as something out of a medieval battle. D.C. Police Officer Daniel Hodges described being crushed in a door while someone tried to gouge out one of his eyes. Throughout his testimony, he referred to the rioters as terrorists. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn described weeping on a bench in the Capitol Rotunda after processing the fact that rioters had unleashed a torrent of racial epithets, including the N-word, at him and his fellow officers of color. But the moment that seemed to best capture the outrage and anguish of the witnesses was when Officer Fanone, himself beaten unconscious on that day and electrocuted over and over again with his own taser, slammed down his hand on the witness table and called out Republicans for minimizing or outright denying the brutal January 6th attack. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful, he told the committee. The empty seats at the hearing on Tuesday seemed to underscore that indifference. Only two Republicans took part in the proceeding, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Illinois' Adam Kinzinger, both of whom were appointed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and accepted the positions in defiance of their party leadership. What impact will the House investigation have? Who, if anyone, will be held accountable for the attack? And what is the political future of renegade Republicans like Cheney and Kinzinger, who have staked out such strong positions against Donald Trump and the Republican Party he holds sway over? We'll discuss this week's hearing and where the investigation goes from here with our colleague, Yahoo News senior political reporter, John Ward. And then we'll talk to Bill Kristol, the longtime political commentator, veteran of Republican administrations and Cheney family insider about how Republicans have handled the aftermath of January 6th and what that says about the future of the party on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, 
preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. We're going to try to make up for Michael Isikoff's absence on this episode. He's on vacation. How dare he? Maybe we should take advantage of Michael Isikoff's absence <laughs> on this episode of the podcast. I may get more than one question in. I don't know. There's a chance. <laughs> yeah. Well, a very well-deserved vacation. I'm sure Isikoff is uh, on the beach somewhere, notebook in hand, harassing uh, other beachgoers and trying to get stories out of them, which he'll bring back for the next podcast. We wish him the best on his vacation. But in his place... We have uh, John Ward joining us, who covered Tuesday's hearing. And so, John, let's just start with, uh, you know, you and I were kind of texting back and forth a little bit during the hearing, and I think we both had the same reaction, which is that we were somewhat surprised at how emotional it was for us who, who have covered this story now for more than six months to be hearing these stories, to see the testimony, to see the videos again. I know that for me, uh, a lot of emotion was kind of welling up from the very start of that hearing. Tell us what was going through your mind uh, as you watched the, uh, the hearing uh, unfold. Yeah, two things. Um, one is that I think there's been a period of time during which a lot of people, myself included, have tried to just think about other things rather than the brush with demise that our democracy encountered, you know, about six months ago. And so I think a lot of the country has been eager to move on from the divisiveness of the Trump era and eager to not have to think every day about what outrage the president is committing and, and not have to argue about, I mean, COVID has been sort of dissipating. Obviously, it's ticking back up now. So that's removed some divisiveness over the last six months. So I think, you know, Trump has just been ramping up his attacks on the election more and more and more over the last two months or so. And this hearing comes at a time when I think people, maybe just in our industry, probably most people, Americans are, are still on vacation and enjoying their summer. But I think if you're covering the news, if you're covering this hearing, you're coming to this and it's kind of a re-engagement with the process because Congress has set up this select committee. And so, you know, I found myself, you know, stirred emotionally, angry about what happened and, uh, and upset at watching, you know, the suffering of the police, um, the lawlessness of the, the insurrectionists. And I think the other thing that stood out to me is just some of the body cam footage, some of the security uh, CCTV footage showing the tunnel combat, um, you know, it was just this hand-to-hand crushing, grinding medieval battle between just masses of bodies for inches in these tunnels. And I think seeing some of that footage that I had never seen before just reinforced like how much worse that day could have been because you had a couple of these entrances where police uh, from Capitol police, from, from 
uh, DC police, metropolitan police were holding off rioters and keeping the number of people getting into the Capitol down. And basically they bought time between two o'clock and four o'clock. I need to actually go back to the timeline and figure out when exactly reinforcements arrived. I know it was somewhere in the four to five hour, but there was a two hour period there where these cops were just holding these people off and enduring just horrific abuse uh, from, you know, all kinds of uh, chemicals being sprayed to just being battered by wave after wave of, uh, of, you know, people assaulting them. So those were kind of my two personal takeaways. So, you know, I, I think probably between the three of us on this conversation, we've, we've probably been at or watched thousands of congressional hearings. And I think it was possibly the most effective congressional hearing I've ever seen. And one of the reasons why it was so effective, but but I've got a question, was because the, the kind of the standard issue partisan bickering that you see in House hearings wasn't present. And there was a sort of a unity of purpose amongst the committee members and a shared understanding that around the purpose of, of the hearing to, to hear what had happened and to respect the law enforcement officers. My question is, what next? Where does this committee go next? That was a pretty amazing hearing. Is there another one that they could have? How can this committee top or equal that hearing? Well, I mean, I think in terms of emotional impact and um, and uh, just sort of a compelling presentation, that's going to be a highlight of the, the committee's work. But if you go to the website, justsecurity.org and look through, uh, you know, you maybe you guys could put this in the show notes, but they have a document, questions the January 6th select committee should ask its witnesses. This is a page that goes on. You can scroll through it for a very long time. They have a list of potential witnesses here that is, you know, probably 30 plus people. So you have the head of the FBI at the time or current current still Chris Ray, uh, you know, DHS, all of the people in charge of the Pentagon and the army, the MPD, the Capitol police, a number of people in the Trump white house. There's about 13 of them on this list. Um, as well as four others outside that were Trump advisors, Roger Stone and, and folks like that. So there is a long, long list of names and questions that need to be answered. The Senate has done a sort of an initial, investigation into why the threat posture at the Capitol was not sufficient, why it was not prepared for such an assault. But, you know, as the folks at the Lawfare uh, website have pointed out, they're just really smart folks over there. You know, that investigation was very limited. It did not get into uh, all of the things that caused those uh, shortcomings in preparation. We don't know really anything about why the response from the National Guard was delayed for hours, uh, even though we have testimony from uh, the former Secretary of Defense and others that suggest there might have been either a, a lack of uh, communication from President Trump and the White House at the least, or, you know, we need to know, was there actual communication from uh, the Trump White House that had some role to play? in those delays in sending National Guard units 
uh, and in sending further um, police units from other localities. I mean, we know, for example, that uh, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan was proactively reaching out. I was in touch with uh, Hogan's people on January 6th asking why aren't Maryland State Police, you know, on the scene. And his spokesman said the same thing that Hogan has said publicly, which is that they were not getting approval from the Pentagon. So there's all these unanswered questions about why these things happened on January 6th. Um, and that's going to be the work of this committee. But that raises some interesting questions. First of all, I do want to give a shout out to Ryan Goodman, who is uh, the editor of Just Security, and Ben Wittes, who runs uh, Lawfare, both of whom are friends of Skullduggery and both of whom have been on the podcast. So they are great resources for people who want to dig further into these issues. But, you know, we've been saying all along, look, it was it was I think it was very smart of this committee to start the hearing with this very powerful, visceral, emotional testimony and to sort of set the scene of what happened on on January 6th. But at the end of the day, the investigation is going to have to uncover new facts and is going to have to answer a lot of those very good questions that you just posed. And the question is, you know, Victoria, who's the only one among us who's actually been on a um, congressional committee that's issued subpoenas, will they be able to do that? Uh, They can certainly issue subpoenas. Can they enforce them? What kind of litigation will there be? Can they do it on the timeline that they need it to be on? So it was notable that Liz Cheney, you know, in her opening statement said, basically, we're going to be doing this and we're going to be doing it quickly. We need to answer all of those questions, everything that happened inside the White House, every phone call, every meeting. But I put this to both of you. How plausible is it that the committee will be able to actually do that and enforce those subpoenas and get the information they need? I mean, the only thing I would I would defer to Victoria on how that could work. But I think my political instinct on this is that this this is going to be a significant issue, the the enforcement of subpoenas, because I think they're going to subpoena a number of these folks who worked at the White House and they're going to face stonewalling. And Congress hasn't hasn't used its powers to uh, compel testimony through basically arresting people. I don't even know which law enforcement agency would do that, but they've done it in the past. The sergeant of arms, right? They haven't yeah, done yeah, it since so, like so, the 19th century. Yeah, no, no, no. They, they did it in the 1930s, actually. I think, okay, the, I think the, right. the last guy who got arrested for declining to, you know, kind of uh, comply with a congressional subpoena, there, there's no congressional jail as it happens. And so they, they put him up in the Willard, which is a which is a, <laughs> a fancy a fancy hotel in Washington, D.C. So that was, that was the last guy who went to congressional jail. Now, so, you know, like, uh, John, I think you put your finger on it, which is how fast are they going to move to the subpoena, right? So previous congressional committees have, you know, kind of engaged in these like careful, cautious dances with people they want to have testify and they try to persuade them. And then the, when the persuasion doesn't work, they threaten to subpoena them. Then eventually they get around to subpoenaing them. Then they go to court to try to enforce the subpoena. And long story short, you know, three years have passed before you can get any of that testimony. But I think kind of what, what's happening with this committee is they've learned the lesson of the last four years of the Trump administration, which is no more pussyfooting around, right? Just they're going straight to subpoena and they're moving fast. And yesterday, the Department of Justice issued an opinion which indicated that the Depart- neither the Department of Justice nor the White House would agree with an assertion of executive privilege. So if any of those White House 
House people attempt to decline to comply with the subpoena because they they say that, you know, executive privilege applies and so they can't testify. They're not going to get any joy from the Department of Justice or the White House and likely not going to get much joy from the courts. So I I think there's a chance these subpoenas are going to move fast and they're going to get enforced. And it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not uh, any people try to um, try to avoid the subpoenas and if they if they end up in the Willard jail um, for their efforts. Well, I'm uh, I'm guessing I'm guessing if Donald Trump refuses to testify and they send the send the sergeant arms to arrest him, he'll stay in the Trump hotel. Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I actually think to be yeah, it's it's the Willard story is funny, but I think I think nowadays they've got a uh, I think they've got a, um, a memo of understanding with the D.C. police and they can they can put him up in in a D.C. jail if they really need to. But uh, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting story when all of that starts flying. Well, just to point out, Benny Thompson, the chair of the select committee, a Democrat from Mississippi, after the hearing yesterday, came out and said, we're not going to send letters. We're sending we're starting right away with subpoenas. So he made very clear yesterday after the hearing, we're not waiting. We're going to subpoenas. We're going right away. He didn't say who yet, but he made he made explicitly clear that that's they're going to do exactly what you just said. Yeah. I mean, people just may remember that during the impeachment one um, or pre-impeachment one, the the uh, the I think it was the House Judiciary Committee attempted to get testimony from Don McGahn, the uh, Bush's former White House counsel. He was no longer White House counsel when they attempted to get his testimony. Uh, McGahn resisted. The Trump administration resisted. uh, They went to court. McGahn, it took almost two years before they could get McGahn in front of uh, anyone to testify. I think it's going to be a lot faster this time. I was going to say, you know, my question, I wonder, what is this committee's definition of success? You know, is it, you know, kind of figuring out the intelligence errors and kind of concocting a, you know, like a 15-point plan to increase coordination amongst, you know, intelligence agencies and the Capitol Police? Is it, is it that sort of stuff? Or is there a bigger definition of success to them? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's elements of finding out what happened that we don't, you know, finding questions to answers that we don't have the answers to yet. The ones that I kind of outlined, uh, I think that's a big one. Like, what did Trump do on January 6th? Was he responsible for uh, the slowness of the response or the lack of preparation in any way? And then I think preparing for the future, you know, in terms of uh, readiness around the Capitol and intelligence assessments is also another one. But I think it was interesting what Benny Thompson said in his opening remarks yesterday, which is that the the threat to democracy is ongoing um, because of former President Trump's continuation of his lies about the 2020 election. Personally, I'm not a big fan of the, the phrase, the big lie. I just think it's like sort of I'm not a big fan of those like, I don't know, buzzwords. Uh, I think they too easily turn into things that people just hear and say, OK, well, I, I know what that means. So I just you know, reject it or dismiss it. But I, I think that, uh, you know, Thompson said this is an ongoing threat to democracy. And part of the work of this committee is going to be to try to, he used the word, eliminate those threats, which is, you know, I'm not really sure how they would do that. You know, they're, they're not uh, law enforcement. They can't go out and um, investigate people. Um, so, you know, I think maybe he means by shining more light on what happened that could expose 
you know, those who, who were behind this or those who were responsible and, and further discredit them, uh, you know, in the, in the eyes of the country. That might be what he was getting at. So, John, you know, there's um, clearly there's, there's, a, there's political calculation behind these hearings as well as obviously— <laughs> as well as obviously, you know, principle and, and uh, the importance of, of doing all the things you just talked about. And by the way, the politics in a way can be can also be noble. If part of what the exercise is here is to prevent a further slide into authoritarianism and destruction of, of our democratic institutions, then, you know, you also have to you also have to win elections and so and prevent the people who you hold responsible for all of those things to lose elections. So from a purely political uh, standpoint, do you have a sense of how the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi and Benny Thompson see this, these hearings as, uh, as, as a kind of a political battering ram going into the midterms and, and, then, and then beyond? So I think there's ways in which these hearings can be political that is appropriate, and then there's ways in which they could be political that is inappropriate or maybe unhelpful. I don't know, uh, you know, both of those terms might apply, but, you know, I think her decision to reject Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio and um, Jim uh, Banks from Indiana, you know, with Jordan in particular, I, I think blocking him from the panel actually made the committee's work to Victoria's point more sober, more serious, more focused on, actually doing the job that it's supposed to do, which is fact finding. And, you know, Jordan proved during the first impeachment that he's not a serious interrogator of the truth and, and reality. He's, he was there on the house intelligence committee, which I attended all of those hearings in person. And he was there specifically to muddy the waters through, you know, lobbying conspiracy theories and hyperpartisan talking points. And so I think that was a political decision that resulted in uh, the committee being positioned to do its work in a, in a proper way. You know, I think it, I think there's undoubtedly going to be calculus by the Democrats that, you know, getting to the truth here could discredit Trump ahead of 2024. But I think the degree to which the committee and even people outside the committee like Pelosi, I think the degree to which they are seen as using this committee to score political talking points uh, will actually undermine it to some degree. And so I think they're smart enough to know that. And I think they will probably try to refrain as I think they did largely during the first impeachment from over the top rhetoric and just let the process play out and let the facts speak for themselves. I mean, I think in a, in a way it's like, that's their best political outcome to just let the process move forward in a sober way uh, with integrity. It's kind of a win-win for them. That doesn't always happen in politics. Sometimes you have to kind of maneuver more and take advantage of things in a way that maybe is a bit more crass. But here, I don't see that. I think, uh, you know, my big my big unknown question, and I, I don't know, I don't know that we'll, we'll ever kind of, I hope we'll never know the answer to this question. But if, uh, if Donald Trump were to try to whip up a group of people to assault the Capitol again, you know, because they're convinced he could get sworn back in in August or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, would people show up? Would they do it? Are we still in that place? I think I, I think today, no. 
I think you'd have some people show up, but you wouldn't have critical mass. And you'd also, you'd also have, you know, law enforcement on a much sharper footing to uh, respond. You know, I think what made January 6th so potent was the lack of preparation by law enforcement combined with the drumbeat over months and months and months that created a alternative reality, a belief in an alternative reality among millions of Americans out of which came, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, who came to Washington out of those tens of thousands came several thousand who actually, you know, committed violent acts to breach the Capitol. Um, And so there was, there was a cumulative effect over time. You know, I think a number of people I've heard quoting, I can't remember who said this, uh, but basically that, you know, the demise of democracy or something bad happens over time and then all at once. So I think you need that kind of effect for something like January 6th to happen. I think, you know, there's other scenarios where anti-democratic or, you know, even fascist type actions could take place. But I think a January 6th type event, you know, a lot of the factors I just laid out are kind of needed. And that's not saying it couldn't happen again, because it can. Absolutely. He can run for president in 2024. He can convince millions of people once again that if he loses, it's rigged. So that is a, a, a possible scenario, undoubtedly. I was gonna. I was gonna inject. I think it's a. It's a Heming. It's a Hemingway quote that the. Uh, how did it happen? Uh, gradually, then suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, very uh, highfalutin here, <laughs> quoting, he- quoting Heming- Hemingway. Um, uh, just uh, back to the earth, John. What's next for this investigation? Uh, subpoenas. Uh, how soon might we see them? Uh, when will there be another hearing? I think I heard possibly even when the. Congress is out of session in August. Uh, Benny Thompson might bring the committee back. Yeah. Thompson uh, said yesterday after the hearing that um, it's possible they come back and hold a hearing in August. I don't have a good sense of when they'll start issuing subpoenas, but I have to believe that that will start over the next month. You know, I I just think they're going to probably issue subpoenas and schedule hearings with people who they expect to actually testify without any resistance kind of on dual tracks so that they've got people lined up to testify soon, either in August or in September, who are going to willingly testify. And then they're probably at the same time issuing those subpoenas to get that process started as soon as possible with people who they expect to resist testimony. It will be interesting to see how they differentiate, if they do, between people who need a subpoena and those who don't. Maybe they make an initial contact, and then if there's no response, you know, that is the trigger for a subpoena. I don't know exactly how they're determining that, but uh, that's actually a good line of inquiry for me in my reporting. Well, we know that um, when the next hearing occurs or when there are new um, significant developments in the uh, committee's investigation, you will be on it for us, and you will come back on the podcast to talk about it. So that is reassuring to us and I'm sure many of our listeners. But if it happens next week, we will not be on it because we're on vacation, right? We are joining Isakoff on vacation next week, figuratively, not literally. <laughs> um, so we'll be we'll be dark um, next week, but we will be back what the second week of August. Second week of August, or some of us, mark, some of us will be calendars. back the second week. We may we may be uh, in kind of rotation mode here, so. 
uh, some of us will definitely be back. So, John, thank you for uh, joining uh, Skullduggery. And uh, we uh, got another terrific guest uh, coming up, Bill Crystal, who uh, spent most of his career in the belly of the Republican beast um, and has um, lots of insights about where the party is going, how January 6th and its aftermath has affected uh, the party. Uh, Liz Cheney and Kinzinger, who obviously are on the committee. So let's get to it. Joining us now is political commentator, veteran of the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, and currently editor-at-large at The Bulwark, Bill Crystal. Bill, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be with you both. So look, we were all riveted by that testimony uh, on Tuesday. And, and frankly, I, I was actually a little taken aback. I was surprised at how shocking it still is to hear those stories and to see, that, uh, see the video of, of that awful day. So I just wanted to start by asking you, what was going through your mind when you were watching the testimony? And not to be too grandiose about it, but in terms of the, you know, the, the health or sickness of the republic in our in our political system right now. I mean, it was riveting and genuinely moving in a way that, yeah, I think many of us who've been around too long, perhaps kind of a little jaundiced and sort of used to these kinds of things. But that was that was genuinely unusual. I hope it moved a lot of my fellow Americans. I would say a couple of things that occurred to me as I was watching or shortly after were how often were, were these, I mean, how often conventional wisdom, punditry wisdom is wrong. I think the conventional wisdom when Pelosi refused, when the Speaker Pelosi refused to put those two Republicans on the committee and then McCarthy pulled the other three, was that, oh, she finally made a mistake. It's so important that it looked bipartisan, all this sort of stuff. Totally the opposite, I think, of the truth, which is they had a real hearing. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, the two Republicans who were, are on, were terrific. You had the sense that you were here. There was no grandstanding by the members, which there certainly would have been if Jim Jordan or others had been on. So I think Speaker Pelosi is totally vindicated in her tough political, tough political judgment, and, and not just political, but her judgment that if we want to have a serious hearing about what happened on January 6th, uh, we can't have people like Jim Jordan and uh, and Jim Banks uh, on the, on the uh, committee. Um, the other thing that struck me is I've been saying you know, January 6th was horrible. It was terrible to see that happen in the Capitol. And, and there was genuine human cost and suffering and an image of the US and the world and so forth. But really, really what was fundamentally important was what happened between November 3rd and January 6th. I mean, the real serious attempt by Trump and his colleagues to subvert the election through the Justice Department, the Defense Department, pressuring state officials. I mean, and I've encouraged people I've spoken to in the, on the Hill to make sure that the, the, the committee considers all that, not the more simply the more dramatic events of January 6th. I think I'm still right about that in the sense that you have to put it all together. It, the whole, it wasn't a one-day thing. It was a two-month thing or maybe, a, depending on how you think about it, a six-month thing or a four-year thing, and it's worth thinking about it. You know, that is the right way to think about it. Having said that, I think I was being a little too clever by half myself, that I mean, the, the drama of just that one day brings home the broader point in a way that, well, we'll see what happens with later testimony, but in a way that the account of Trump's phone call to Brad Raffensperger or the worries at the by serious people uh, and uh, former secretaries of defense that he was going to use the, uh, the military inappropriately, all that stuff's a little more abstract compared to what happened on January 6th. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It did feel a little bit like a time warp in that some of us are old enough to remember when these kinds of hearings were bipartisan, were sober, 
uh, were serious. But I want to just follow up before Victoria jumps in on, on what you said at the outset, which is that you think, you hope that this hearing will have real impact, will break through. As you know, you know, we are at a time in our politics when everyone is so dug in on both sides. What makes you, what gives you hope that this hearing will actually uh, make a difference, will lead to holding people accountable and get to the bottom of what happened? You know, I'm not that hopeful that things will fundamentally change. There have been so many moments over the last months and years where one thought, okay, this is the moment. Finally, people turn away and see what happened to Trump and to Trump's defenders and enablers. So I don't know that that's going to happen. You know, on the margin, though, insofar as Trump has been quite successful, really amazingly successful, distressingly successful, and keeping control of at least the Republican Party and of stifling uh, dissent, in a sense, and 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 getting an incredible number of people to sign on to the big lie and and then sign on to forward-looking efforts to deny voting rights and lay the groundwork for future uh, overturning of elections. Maybe this stops the momentum in that direction, at least. Maybe it's a bit of a, you know, reality check that at least causes people who are maybe not profiles and courage and not, uh, you know, people willing to stand up to every to Trump and but, but sort of look at that and think, oof, maybe I should just cool it for a while. So it might be one of those things that doesn't have a huge immediate effect. But when we look back, and this may be itself wishful thinking, but if we look back at the arc of Trump's influence post-presidency, maybe it peaks around now and, and maybe we have start a, a gradual decline. So, you know, two of the stars of the hearing were, were clearly Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And they were, you know, clearly more than just, uh, you know, kind of uh, decorative Republicans for the for the committee. I'm wondering, do you think that they made the case to other Republicans in the House that they should to join them? That did they kind of put a stake in the ground that will attract other House Republicans to join them? Very doubtful about the current House Republican conference. And, you know, they could have joined Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger already. Again, maybe it mutes some of the criticism of them, or maybe a few more people just decide to go silent for a few months and not positively encourage and repeat and amplify the big lie or attempts at election overturning or other kind of Trumpy efforts in demagoguery. So I think it's probably, and I'd say that's maybe a little more effect outside the house though, I would say people watching, if you're a candidate, you're a 40 year old, 35 year old running Republican running in an open seat, you know, for next year for the house or even the state and local level. And you watch that maybe before you were thinking, boy, I just have to go all in with Trump. As everyone's telling me, that's where, that's where the party's going. That's where the momentum is. That's where the strength is. What's my choice? Now, maybe you look at that and you think, oof, I don't know that you think I'm going to go become an ever-Trumper. Um, they should have done that a while ago, but they're not. Most of them aren't. But maybe they decide to kind of try to stay out of it for a while. And look, that's from my point of view, that's not a great outcome. And it doesn't make me feel that warm to the Republican Party if they just are less irresponsible than they were. But from the country's point of view, less strident irresponsibility is at least a start on the, the start. Maybe it's the beginning of a, a, a step or two on, on the path back. So if that's the case, you know, what do you think Kinzinger and Cheney's vision is? What's their, what, you know, what's their long-term goal here? Uh, they, they're clearly buying a whole lot of trouble with the Republican Party, cutting themselves off 
from a lot of the support that the party has given them, uh, drawing, you know, opponents in their, you know, primary opponents? What's their what's their long term strategy? So I think they I think they think they're doing the right thing. And I think in those two cases, honestly, they really are doing it because they believe they're doing the right thing. I know them both well. I was disappointed in them and argued with them uh, over the last couple of years. They stayed loyal enough to Trump. Kinsinger is pretty outspoken, Cheney less so, but that they both supported his re-election. And I remember saying you know, to them and to others to close to them, you can't possibly think a second term for Donald Trump is a good idea. And incidentally, after everything we've learned you now, does you know, all those people in the middle who were, you know, kind of, oh, I have my real problems with Trump, but go oh, second term, I'm going to endorse him for re-election, everything from the, you know, kind of Wall Street Journal editorial board types to National Review types to a ton of congressmen and senators who privately had doubts about Trump. How do they feel now? I mean, I'd like some of them to come out and say what would be helpful, incidentally, is if, if more of them followed at least what Cheney and Kinzinger have said, which was they, they're happy Trump didn't win a second term. They regret having supported Trump. They wouldn't support him again. In Cheney's case, and I think this is true of, of Kinzinger too, they won't support McCarthy for speaker because he's been so accommodating too and so much of an apologi apologist for Trump. So it's maybe, maybe it's too much to hope that people go all that way. But I think you can imagine, again, the kind of in-between position where people do, they do have an effect on, on, on people sort of not being enthusiastic about Trump for 2024 and, and about the Trumpiest candidates in 2022. In terms of their own futures, I mean, I'm not sure what's happening with Kinsinger's district and redistricting. Janie's got uh, a big primary challenge in Wyoming. If she survives that, uh, she'll be re-elected. Re she'll be a member of the House. Uh, she won't be a part of the Republican leadership. But... She's so at odds with so much of the party on on, on this, this pretty fundamental issue right now that maybe it's better not to be in the leadership. And I, you know, she's so the, I think it's, she's mostly doing what she thinks is right to the degree there's a political calculation. It is, as you suggested, kind of a long term one. It's not the two months from now, Liz Cheney is going to be uh, have wildly favorable numbers in Republican among Republicans. It's that two years from now or maybe four or five or six years from now, people are going to say, you know what, uh, at the time I thought she picked a fight she didn't need to, she was too outspoken, she exaggerated the problems, but now I acknowledge that she was right, or at least more right than wrong. Have you um, had a chance to talk to her at all in the run-up to these hearings? Um, have you given her the benefit of, of any of your advice? No, not, not directly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, let me ask you about the politics of, of these hearings in particular, because clearly everyone who was, all of the members, the Democrats and, and, and the Republicans there, I think were there because they genuinely feel um, outrage over what happened and that, you know, there has to be a serious investigation. Um, but there's also always politics involved as well. And I'm curious uh, how you think this plays out politically uh, for the Democrats, whether you think in retrospect it was helpful or or still maybe think it was a mistake that Pelosi refused uh, to seat either Jim Banks or Jim Jordan. What do you think the politics are from the perspective of, of Democrats um, in this hearing? So I don't, I don't know how many people are going to vote on this in 2022, obviously. So it'll become a one data point among many, many in, in the general image of the parties. But I think it helps the Democrats in the sense, in two senses, um, it reminds people that this is this is how, this was what happened on January six. This is what we will end up getting reminded of what Trump did and did, did to, in the lead up to January six, including at noon that day when he spoke to the rally, and also what he didn't do 
as the capital uh, was being attacked. And I've always thought that part has been a little bit under sort of emphasized. I mean, the president, and I, maybe because I served in the White House, the idea that a president of the United States doesn't immediately call a National Security Council meeting, get the Defense Department and Justice Department on the phone, make sure every asset of the US government is used to protect our own capital, you know, from an assault is just unbelievable to me. So, so Trump's dereliction of duty is negligence, willful negligence, because of course he was on the side of the people doing the assault, um, is something that I, th I think will be brought home a little more over the next few months. And that will in turn reflect on a Republican party, 60% of which, or oh, 60% of the House members at least, of which, on the evening of January 6th, voted to overturn election results, having seen what happened as a result of the big lie during the day on January 6th. So I, I think it, it, you know, insofar as that issue become, is one of many that people are voting on in 2022, it's, uh, insofar as uh, it, it just makes the Republicans look as irresponsible, really, as they truly were, it keeps that alive. Let me put it that way. It keeps it keeps the the memory of that a little more alive, and I think that's good for the Democrats, you know, in a marginal way. The other thing I would say, this I think it has not been commented on, but maybe I see this because I have a, I don't know what I am exactly. What are people to judge? What are you like me? <laughs> a future judge said we were future former Republicans, so that was a good one. <laughs> I thought um, the Democrats. So the biggest the biggest reason, I'd say a certain stripe of not very friendly to Trump, you know, mostly maybe middle upper middle class business kind of oriented Republicans have either stuck with the Republicans or might go back to them in 2022 is, you know, Democrats are so radical, you know, horribly left wing, politically correct, progressive, uh, you know, socialist, whatever, critical race theory, whatever you want. And, and you know, there are, we can discuss each of those elements if you want, and what's what, what tiny parts of truth there are in them and what mostly untruths there are. But think of the Democrats you saw on that committee. They did not look like crazy people. They did not look like people who hated America. They did not look like, not look like people who were obsessed with some crackpot economic theory or weirdo, you know, thought all of American foreign policy or all of American history was just a saga of horrible imperialism or terrible injustice. I mean, they didn't address this directly, but the general image one, the feeling one got from them is that they were decent people, horrified by what they were seeing, sympathetic to the Capitol Police. I mean, I think the defund the police thing is gonna be a little harder for the Republicans to sell after the Democrats are the ones who are incredibly sympathetic to and concerned about the Capitol Police and the Republicans are, at least some of them, uh, are scornful of them. And uh, so I, I think in that respect, it has a sort of weird, very indirect, I will grant, but you know, effect on people's Again, people who are paying attention to a certain kind of maybe swing swingish voter, their image of well, what is the Democratic Party about? Is a party of Joe Biden and Benny Thompson and and uh, Congresswoman Luria and Stephanie Murphy and and you know is that really a party you should be so terrified of uh, going forward? Yeah, you know, uh, just one quick follow up because the point that you made about the police um, is so interesting to me. I mean, watching that hearing, I mean it. We all grew up with the Republicans as the party of, of law and order, right? And this was uh, emotional testimony from these police officers who were, all they were doing was trying to defend the rule of law. And it, it kind of raises the question in my mind, I mean, do, do principles matter at all? And the, the ability of uh, so many people in the Republican Party today to kind of hold these opposing ideas in their head, that on the one hand, uh, the Democrats are, you know— all about defunding the police and um, 
you know, I think I think it was actually well said by one of the uh, police officers. I can't remember which one it was who was pointing out that some of these insurrectionists were holding that uh, thin blue line flag as they were attacking the police. And what does that say about the the Republican Party today in a, in a larger sense? Well, and, and as James Carville and others have pointed out, I've seen some of this polling data myself. The defund the police thing hurt the Democrats in 2020 down ballot. Biden was not really susceptible to that attack. But they, you know, people know much less about their members of Congress or channel or candidates for Congress. And they had the the Republicans did it, spent a ton of money and did a pretty good job, mostly unfairly, attacking various random people running as Democrats as hostile to the police, because the whole party allegedly believed to defund the police because you know, three members of the party had said to fund the police at one point, and a few others hadn't distanced themselves from it right away. And so I do think that that was not a trivial issue. And if that, even if only that issue was taken off the table for 2022, that's not nothing politically. You know, uh, just listening to you speak about the the kind of the, the Republican Party's, you know, position on a lot of these issues just really drives home, I think, the fact that 20, the upcoming 2022 election and then even 2024 election isn't going to represent any sort of like a sharp turn in terms of the the kind of the, the belief system of the Republican Party and its kind of its its you know, kind of its embrace of Trump and of of some of these kind of more kind of dangerous kind of anti-democratic or anti-democracy trends. And it's 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 really kind of nerve wracking to to hear you say that. How much longer can this country take that that trend? Well, I think we have to take that possibility, let's say, or a threat seriously for the next several years, honestly. No, I agree. It's kind of nerve-wracking. I think people have been slow. Uh, you know, maybe I, I would call myself guilty of this too. And really coming to grips with the fact that, I mean, it became out, 2020 was uh, right away, the, 2020, the night of 2020, the Bulwark had a live stream and people, and I was we were kind of depressed. I was pretty clear Biden had won. So that was very good news from our point of view. But I, I was beginning to be aware, the data came in, the election results came in slowly, obviously, in some of these down ballot elections, that Democrats looked like they'd lost maybe 10 seats. And at the time, it wasn't clear they were going to win the Senate, obviously, pre-Georgia. So, and it's like, geez, this is not an all-out repudiation of Trump or of a Trumpified Republican Party, and it wasn't in 2020. And people keep hoping that there'll be a magic moment when it's just across the board. You know, 2018 was a big loss in the House, very important that the Democrats won the House, but McConnell held the Senate. 2020, lost the presidency, very, very important. Uh, gained seats in the House, but stayed short of a majority, very important, with Georgia 50-50 Senate. But yes, yeah, you say, it's still on the bubble very much. Makes a big difference what happens in 22 and 24. If 2022 is like 2018, if Democrats resist the normal pattern of losing seats in the first off year election of when they hold the presidency, hold the Senate, maybe pick up a Senate seat or two, I don't think that's impossible. Hold the House, that's tough, but maybe doable. Well, doable, but, but, but not easy. Uh, that would be a big deal. Uh, um, if they picked up seats, that would be pretty amazing. Then if they were to win in 2024, um, you know, let's just say they increased the margin again by a couple of points. So uh, Hillary Clinton's margin over Trump was, what, about two points in, in 2016 in the popular vote. Biden's was about four points. What if it goes to six or eight? It's still not, you know, 25 points, you know, decisive moment, you know, uh, everything's solved. But, you know, that that would make a huge difference if it goes the other way. On the other hand, obviously, we're in a whole different world. So I do think people have to sort of toughen up 
they realize this is a longer haul, take the smaller advantages when they can and not expect that there's going to be this wonderful, this moment when the sky suddenly clear, clears and the clouds go away and it's the sun pours down. It's much more a matter of, of incremental progress because the Trump, the rot in the Republican Party was deeper than people like me realize, but then the degree to which Trump has exacerbated it all and it's now and there's so many people imitating him and the, it's sort of hard, I think, hard to put it back, hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube to mix various images and metaphors here. Now, having said that, I suppose the only caveat I would have to that is that's how it feels now. But if we should learn anything in the last five, six, seven years, these things could change pretty suddenly. So maybe we will have the sun, the sky, you know, clear and, you know, massive turn, uh, some inflection point, something really big happens that just, and everyone just goes, whoa, this was, you know, kind of, we have to really rethink things. And it's not just 2%, 4%, 6% of Republican voters saying that it's 20 or 30 or 40%. I don't think that's impossible. You could imagine that scenario. You know, they, they thought something different seven, eight years ago. They could certainly go back to thinking that or, or go forward to thinking something more like that. But I, I think it's more prudent at this point to think that, as you said, it's not a, there's no, uh, there's no quick uh, solution to this problem. Okay, but but last night maybe in Texas there was a glimmer of hope, and you yeah. you ha you had a little something to do with that apparently through a uh, through <laughs> through I mean, that was kind of a, a strategically story, which I yeah. can tell in a minute. But I mean, yeah. So I think it's a good case study though. It was it was good the, the less Trumpy Republican won in a sort of odd situation in a special election where two Republicans got in the runoff. On the on the end, Jake Elsey, whom I had actually given a modest contribution to in the summer of 2018, so three years ago when he was running for Congress and lost actually in the primary. Um, he really was, he wasn't quite never Trump, but he was very non-Trump Republican. He's adjusted, unfortunately, like the rest of the party over the last two and a half, three years. And now he's a kind of Trump accommodating and rationalizing Republican, but not full in, you know, all Trumpy and Trump endorsed his opponent. So the good news is LZ won. The good news is there were, <laughs> yeah, the Club for Growth ran an ad featuring my 2018, if you can believe it, $250 contribution to LZ, a sign that he was unacceptable, a favorite, a favorite of the worst never Trumpers. You were a never Trump hitman, yes, I, I, I gather. He, he was, he had, yeah. a, he had accepted a contribution as if you control who contributes to your own campaign, you know, he accepted a contribution from the most notorious never Trump hitman. And that doesn't seem to have cost them the election. And maybe it got a few Democrats, since there was a Democrat in the runoff, to say, well, OK, if, if they hate him so much, maybe he's better, at, even though he's a pretty conservative Republican. Having said all that, it was 53-47, I think, something like that to find out. But so we're not talking about like, you know, and it was a small turnout election. So we're not talking about massive numbers of Texans suddenly deciding they don't like Donald Trump. But, you know, look, at the margin, these things can make a difference. So what do you think uh, Donald Trump is going to do um, in 2024? Do you think he's going to run again? I, you probably saw Michael Wolff's piece uh, promising that he is going to run, his uh, evidence being that he uh, hasn't started uh, building a Trump library, <laughs> presidential library. I don't think I'm, I'm not promising anything. And no, I think if he's healthy enough, he'll run. I, I really don't see why he wouldn't. I mean, he wants to be, he likes being president for all the stuff that, oh, it's hard work. And, he, you know, he, he loved the, 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 all the parts of it he, he cared about and the rest of it he just ignored. You know, now if 2022 goes very badly for him, maybe he'll decide it's, you know, it would be better for him to sort of uh, pretend to, you know, have for other reasons not not run. And if he thinks he's really going to get clobbered by Biden or Kamala Harris or whoever the Democratic nominee is. But I would say if things are kind of where they are now, if you take sort of 
Victoria's premise of you know no radical change. I think he thinks he has a decent chance of winning, and I don't. And I think people are underestimating how much that's that. That's why he's been so obsessed with the big lie, and the, he is. It's so much part of his selling point to Republicans that I have the magic sauce. I can win. McCain and Romney, those nice guys, old fashioned, they couldn't win. I could win. And then you say, well, you, Mr. UK, you won once, kind of flukish, but anyway, you won. But then you lost the next one. No, I didn't really lose it. I was stolen. And now in 2024, with everyone being so alert to the steal, we have a chance to win. So for all that the big lie hurt them in Georgia, it hurts them in some practical ways. It doesn't hurt Trump personally. And in fact, I think it's very important to Trump that he get his people. It's one way of just keeping sort of command of his own people by giving them this narrative to believe in. But it's also a particularly useful narrative if you want to run again. And so I think I do think he wants to and, and do you think do you think the the primary, the Republican primary is a cakewalk for Donald Trump? I think it's a good it's a good question. I was just talking to someone about that yesterday. And I think people are probably a little too quick to assume it's a cakewalk because hey, it's almost never a cakewalk for anyone. You know, I mean, they're always contested, and there's always a moment, at least, where even the front runner gets, even a prohibitive front runner gets challenged for a while. Or Bernie Sanders turns out to be a better, you know, stronger challenger to Hillary Clinton, to take an obvious example in 2016 and so forth. And you know, there will be a chunk of the party that wants to be rid of him. I mean, clearly there'll be twenty percent or thirty percent, and so there's there's votes there for someone, and I think you have to have a Bernie Sanders type attitude, which is you know it's not going to look promising, but I'm going to take my shot this time. And if you're now, I don't think the Liz Cheney types have much of a chance, much as I would like it. But is she? She did. She has not, as far as I know, she's not ruled out. A no, no, primary I think she may well right? run as kind of a just as a standard bearer. But I think the type probably again, assuming we're not looking at radical changes, which we might. But radical changes in the political landscape over the next two years is presumably more the Trump acquiescent, but not crazy like Trump, but a little more responsible than Trump type. And that person has to be willing to take on Trump, which means you get a huge amount of hatred from the true Trump loyalists, which is a pretty good chunk of the party. But you'd have to have the attitude of, you know what, I wonder if he's quite as strong as he thinks. And there's, there's some people who say they like him, but kind of know he's not as good a candidate and also getting kind of old and also just too much baggage and craziness. And I, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz, whoever can be the person, Nick Christie Nome can be the person who looks like a real long shot to start with. I mean, Obama Clinton's probably the best example. The Democrats had no real, I mean, Hillary Clinton was popular in the Democratic Party through 2007, 08. It wasn't like, the Obama voters didn't hate Hillary Clinton, but they sort of wanted, I don't mean this comparison to go too far, obviously, and there were so many differences, but it turned out there was much more of an appetite for change than one thought. And, if, and now I don't know who the Barack Obama in this scenario is, but I, I don't think it's out of the question that that could happen on the in the Republican side in 24. But I think Trump would be the clear favorite going in. So, you know, as... um. As negative or grim as the story feels about a kind of an, an alteration in the kind of Republican Party's story about elections and about democracy feels, there has been like in the last week a positive story about a kind of reversal or an alteration in the Republican outlook on an important thing. And that's the embrace of the need to get vaccinated for, for COVID, right? And, and I'm wondering if, first of all, why you know why was there has there been such a you know breakthrough in the party in terms of embracing the vaccination and is that a you know kind of a, a model a, a sign of maybe a change yeah i mean i think reality matters and 
you know, we could end, people could endlessly claim that you know, masking is oversold. Maybe it was a little, and you couldn't prove that if you went out without a mask, you wouldn't get COVID. And if you went out with a mask, uh, that you that you couldn't get it either. So maybe I said that backwards. You know what I mean? That, that so that kind of stuff is more susceptible to quarrel when you look at the hospitalizations and deaths of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, and the numbers are just radically diverging, then you say, oh, you know, even a Republican governor like Ron DeSantis says, oh my, you know, I, I was fun demagoguing the vaccine issue. It was fun getting passed, think about that for a minute, by the Florida legislature, legislation that prohibits private companies, except for I think Disney was exempted, from insisting on vaccination. Now he's back to, I think the courts overturned that in some ways, the cruise lines are not obeying that. Uh, it's unclear to me if you're a huge business in Florida now or university Florida system or whatever, what you can and can't do. I don't think DeSantis is actually very interested in litigating this anymore. It'd be nice if he actually explicitly apologized for pushing such irresponsible legislation and reversed it. But I think if you're Ron DeSantis, you sort of think, oof, these numbers are, I mean, A, you do presumably care somewhat that Floridians are dying and being hospitalized. And B, you look at this that chart and you think, mm, this is not good for me. I need to be at least uh, urging people to get vaccinated. I also think reality with the uh, Delta variant uh, and the, the combination of the Delta variant and 30% of adults unvaccinated is a very bad combination. And I do think the Biden administration and everyone else is moving towards, as they should, mandates of different kinds to really, it's, it was not crazy to be a little more relaxed about this a month ago. Because look, you just say at some point, if people aren't going to get vaccinated, they're taking risks. But everyone else who's chosen to get vaccinated and continues to choose to do so isn't going to be in good shape. And okay, that's not great, but it's a sort of acceptable outcome, I would say. If it turns out that because of the Delta variant, A, a higher percentage of those 30% are going to get very sick and, and die, and B, you're now going to have some penetration into the vaccinated, which in turn has all kinds of other implications for the future of, of the disease, uh, being able to spread more and stuff. I mean, it really, at schools, because the kids under 12 aren't vaccinated, and our parents going to be comfortable sending their kids back if they're if there's 30% unvaccinated and a Delta variant sweeping through them, and it's you know, not 100% that little kids can't get pretty sick and stuff. So I think the degree to which people started woke up, I, I think I was a little ahead on this, because I've been very alarmed for a couple of weeks, but people in the last week or so like said, this is not acceptable. This could really be more than a little speed bump. This could really be a derail, derailing of our social comeback, educational comeback, economic comeback, as well as public health comeback. I feel like that's been a pretty big move in the last week or two. And I think the Republican change of tone is, is part of that. I've got one last question. I, I just want to come back to the Cheneys, uh, not just Liz Cheney, but uh, to uh, the former vice president. You are close to the Cheney family. Um, I, I'm assuming that there is uh, little or no daylight between Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney on on her kind of repositioning um, within the Republican Party. First of all, let me know if you think that is is the case. I, I don't know. I really don't want to pretend I yeah. know something here, but yeah. I, I agree with your assumption. Yeah. But tell me what you learned about Dick Cheney, about the Cheney family um, over the years that helps explain uh, where Liz Cheney is now and the position that she has uh, staked out for herself, which poses potentially some real peril to her political future. That's an interesting way of putting the question. I mean, I've been sort of close to the Cheneys, had also plenty of times when I've been at odds with them. So I guess a couple of things. I mean, they are strong and stubborn, and once they make up their mind, aren't so easily 
blown off it. So, you know, that can be good or bad, obviously, depending on if you want them to change, have, have to change their minds. But they, I think in this respect, Liz Cheney is you know, not as easily deterred as other people by, even in this case, losing her leadership position in the House, certainly wasn't deterred by the threat of it, which was very obvious at the time. I also think she really, and this is characteristic of her parents too, and her sister for that matter, she thought through the position that she was taking. She had a view, and we, this we argued about, uh, in 20, 2016, basically, to 2020, which is we can bracket Trump and limit the damage. He's probably going to lose in 2020. We need to be responsible for these four years as much as we can, prevent it from doing irreparable, da irreparable damage in various areas, whether it's to our alliances abroad or to our constitution at home. But I'm going to be there. Bill, it's nice for you to, I'm not saying she literally said this, but I think the attitude was, you know, someone like you can go off and, you know, be never Trump. That's fine. You're not in office, but I am have a chance to really shape things here and and and, and prevent some bad things from happening and, and pick up the pieces and put them together afterwards. I think that's what's why she reacted so strongly after November 3rd and particularly after January 6th. But she, she really had assumed that November 3rd would be kind of the end of the Trump moment and there would be a reasonable chance to recover from it and, as I say, put the pieces back together. And that wasn't a crazy assumption. I always thought that was too optimistic and she was underestimating the damage done, but whatever. I mean, that was not ridiculous. I think she saw that it was quite the opposite, not just that Trump personally was trying to overturn the election and call his results into doubt and, and you know, uh, just uh, do terrible damage to the rule of law and to our democracy, but that he, he, people, the rest of the party was going along with him. I think that's one reason she's been so fierce, really, since January 6th, that, I mean, I give her credit for that. She's not just, you know, she really now sees that where things have, she saw early after January, after November 3rd, where things could go, and they have gone that way, with a whole party going off in an anti-democratic, anti-constitutional, anti-rule of law direction. So I think that's a maybe a characteristic of the Chinese. I mean they, they think it through and and don't sort of and see where these things can go. And I think she saw that quite early. And the final point I'd make on that is just you know, her mom writes these books uh, uh, as a historian has written about the American founding and and also children's books about James Madison and stuff. Pretty good actually. And um so they they really care about that. I mean they really are again people can quarrel with them and whatever, but you know, they have always thought of themselves as kind of upholding a certain version, at least, of the American, the best of the American tradition, the American political tradition. And I do think that gives more sort of punch to what Liz Cheney uh, thinks she's doing, her, her self-understanding, than, than just someone, and I don't say this, it's also fine just to think Trump is horrible without knowing that much about American history and the American founding or just thinking his he and his followers are indecent and I'm just going to oppose them because they're you know horrible human beings. That's also fair enough from uh, from my point of view. But I think maybe with with Liz Cheney, there's a little more of that sense of what is this doing to this whole country and to everything it stands for? You know, it's very interesting in her speech, when was that on January 13th, I guess, when she said she was voting for impeachment and then in subsequent speeches. She really has talked a little bit about her own work in the early 1990s when she was quite young. She, uh, as, as the Cold War ended and the Berlin Wall came down, she was an election observer in different countries, I think in both Eastern Europe and, 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 and Africa and Asia. And, you know, really, I mean, she really has internalized a certain view of America that makes her angry at Trump, not just because of what it's doing to her and what it's doing to the Republican Party, and it's just unseemly and, uh, and, and, and kind of, uh, bad right now for the country, but really puts into endangers the whole American 
what America stands for. Isn't the logic of her conviction that would lead her to vote for impeachment, that would lead her to sit on a Pelosi-appointed committee, that if the Republican Party doesn't change, and if she, let's say, loses her primary, then she would have been repudiated by the party, by her constituents, that she leave the party and that she do something very different. I think it's possible. I think she has more resistance than I do, let's say, as of now at least, to becoming a sort of right-wing Biden Democrat But uh, for now. But maybe she'll be right that the Democrats will go in a, in a direction that I really couldn't support it, that she certainly couldn't, and then there'd be a third party possibility. Maybe mm-hmm. she'll become a kind of uh, belated uh, red dog Biden Democrat, or, or, or maybe it's just an independent or third party. One of the things about having a very polarized and evenly divided House and Senate and country is that if you are an independent in the middle, you don't need to have 40% of the country with you, right? If you have five or 10% of the country with, if she had 5% of the House with her and there's a speaker election, Next year, if she had five or ten percent of the country with her, if she ran, and I'm making this up, obviously, as an independent in 2024, you can have a huge amount of leverage, even though you don't have 40 or 50 percent of the country with you. So I don't think that's out of the question. Well, we will have you back on the podcast, Bill, to talk about your involvement in uh, in the third party led by Liz Cheney, and we'll hey. look forward to it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's good, fun discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. 